Uh, I, this, is, this is a passage. I would love for you to have them open the whole time. Um, this, this is one of the most confusing chapters. I, I, I'm going to say this in a minute in the sermon, but there was one commentator who said, I can see a use for this in Bible school, may, may, maybe, but I could never imagine a sermon on it. <laughs> so I, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11, and I am going to read starting at verse 36. And then we're going to be all in uh, this chapter. So read along with me. And if you would keep it open because I'll be referencing a lot in there. So starting at verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. And he shall exalt, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, he, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortress instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, shall be, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow him in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to be back. Uh, it is our family's custom to take two Sundays uh, every summer and uh, go back to Mississippi and visit our family there, um, which we really enjoy. And I want to thank you as I pull up my notes here, uh, say thanks to Robert and Kevin who so capably filled in for me while I was gone. But it is really good to be back. It's good to be looking at you. Again, those of you online, whether you're watching live or through that camera, um, we miss you and we're looking forward to having you back here. This morning, uh, we are, as I said, diving back into Daniel chapter 11. And because I know it's been a few weeks, just a reminder, Daniel 10, chapters 10, 11, and 12 make up one story. And we looked at Daniel chapter 10, where the angels came to bring a message to Daniel, a, a vision to Daniel. And then we see in 11 and 12, what that vision is. And so in chapter 11, we have the first part of that vision, which is basically communicating um, a guaranteed persecution for the people of God. That's, that's what 11 is communicating. And before I dive into this, 
I want to tell you, there is no way in a sermon I could possibly ever unpack all the different views and, and thoughts and disagreements about this passage. Again, remember there was this one commentator I mentioned, mentioned earlier who said he could imagine maybe this being used in Bible school, but could never imagine a sermon from this chapter. So I read that and I was like, oh, great. This is going to, what in the world am I going to do? So I, I did listen to Alistair Begg preach this. And he said when he preached uh, Daniel chapter 11, he employed planned neglect. That is, he planned to neglect a lot of the things that he would normally uh, hit on this passage. And then I listened to a Kevin DeYoung sermon on it. And Kevin DeYoung said, listen, Daniel chapter 11, I can get you started, but I can't do it all for you. So we're going to employ some planned neglect here, but, um, but if you want to go further, I have two suggestions. One, I do think it would be helpful if you didn't hear my sermon on Daniel chapter eight to go back and, and listen to it because I really do unpack a lot of the historical pieces that, that are at play here in this chapter as well. And I think one of the best uh, commentaries out there if you want to uh, buy it or check it out or after next week, Lord willing, when we finish the series, you can borrow mine. As Dale Ralph Davis, he has just a really helpful and um, accessible commentary that I commend to you. Um, but I think it's interesting that I, I've said this a couple times during the, the, the series that, you know, we, we picked all that we would do in 2020 in terms of preaching in 2019. You know, we didn't have any idea where we would be this summer, but God knew. God knew where we would be in Daniel chapter 11. He knew all the things that we would be enduring as a, as a, as a country, as a, as a state, as a church. Um, and during this really unique season, one of the things I've been trying to do um, is just call people. And it could be people who can't come uh, regularly anymore. Uh, sometimes, maybe it's just the, the parents of the kids my kids are friends with and go to school with. Um, other people that I think need encouragement, really whoever the Lord brings to mind. And as I talk to people, I think I could establish probably four common themes. And, and a lot of these themes, would, would you'd fall in these themes based on what's going on in your life and your background, maybe your demographic. But one theme, uh, a real theme that I hear over and over again uh, is discouragement, concern, um, and, and real frustration about the world that we will leave to our kids and our grandkids. Uh, I mean, there, there's real, there's, there's a future that we can imagine that would be extremely hostile to believers. There would, you know, where where not only are we, I mean, let's be honest, for, for the last hundred years, the, the, the stream has pushed us towards Christianity. It's incentivized Christianity. It's good for your business and your politics if you claim to be a Christian, but it's not hard to imagine a future where not only is that idle, but it's pushing back as well, where you might be a social out, outcast for being a Christian, or you know, people like me could even be put in jail for faithfully teaching what the Bible says. That's a future that we could imagine handing to our kids and our grandkids. The future is scary, but what we see in Daniel chapter 11 is God warning us that this is the way that it would be. And so how do we navigate 
these increasingly confusing uh, and even hostile spaces. And in this sermon, in this passage, I I think we, we can break this passage down into three chunks and see three things that can really help us to understand how to navigate a culture that is increasingly hostile towards Christians. And before I do, I, I do want to tell you that I benefited greatly from how Kevin DeYoung broke this up. And even though I've reworked his outline, I want him to get some credit in, in this sermon. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was very helpful how he divided it up to me. All right, so what are these three things as we walk through Daniel chapter 11 um, that can help us navigate an increasingly hostile space? The first is verses two, in verses really 2 through 20, um, where we learn that we can't put our ultimate hope in our political leaders. That's verses 2 through 20. So basically the, all the first 20 verses. Uh, and this is where I think it's also, again, helpful to go back to listen to chapter 8 because in chapter 8, I really do unpack a lot of the historical things going on. But what both chapter 8 and chapter 11 do is that it, Daniel's predicting the fall of the Babylon Empire, the rise and fall of the Medio Persian Empire, the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and then its impending fall and division into four sections. And most, the lion's share of the first 20 verses here, it deals with this, the fracturing Greek Empire, with all these grabs for power. Uh, and the more I spent time in it, it, it began to me to read like one of those really seedy magazines that you see when you check out at the grocery store. I mean, basically, it's just this long list of, of alliances and betrayals and marriages and failed marriages and backstabbing, all to try and gain control and power and uh, you know, order, really. I wouldn't say security, but order. That's what these verses are about. And it's easy in the midst of all this stuff going on to miss the main point, think that the main point is really to understand exactly historically how all this goes down. And while I think we need to understand historically how this goes down, the main point is to marvel at the inability of these great leaders to bring the true peace and stability and security that we long for. That's what's going on in this passage. Nobody can bring it. And you see this passage, it includes great historical figures like Xerxes and Cleopatra and Alexander the Great. And my goodness, Alexander the Great, he only gets one verse. He's, he's the king in verse three. Now, please hear me clearly. This is not to say that we should not care about our country and care about what happens, uh, care about our politics and our leaders. It just says that we can't put our ultimate hope in them and we can't heap a burden on them that no human leader can ever, can ever sustain. As one pastor put it, this passage, it foreshadows permanent conflict and elusive peace. That's what this is talking about. And I was thinking this week, for, for some strange reason, probably because of all my political ambitions in my, in my early 20s, I, I do have some interesting connections to Washington, D.C. And I, I have had the privilege of speaking with and even eating with a few U.S. senators um, I had uh, a fascin- I've had some fascinating conversations with a CIA agent in D.C. Um, the, the guy who ran my senior class campaign at Florida State is now a U.S. congressman. And all of my contacts, my data points that I have in D.C. lead me to believe, and some of y'all have these same kinds of contacts, 
It really leads me to believe the closer you get to the epicenter of power, the, the more you see the, how disgusting it is. You know, you see what Daniel is talking about here in this grab for power. You see this, these alliances and manipulation and backstabbing and betrayals. That, that's the kind of feeling that you get here, but maybe even on a larger scale than, than Washington, D.C. We can't put our ultimate hope on any man or woman or any other political leader. It didn't, it didn't work in the people that Daniel is directly prophesying about and it would never work for anybody else because our ultimate hope, it is only in God. It is only God who can and will restore or bring everlasting security and peace to this world. And if you have eyes to see it, this is, this is where I want you to have your Bible open. Man is not at the center of this passage. This chapter from start to finish is all about God and you can see it every time you see this word, but, all right? So we're gonna dive in here. I'm start with verse five and I want you to see these buts, buts. All right, verse five. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger. Six, after some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. Verse nine, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Verse 11, then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north. He shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. Verse 12, and when the multitude is taken away. His heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him. Verse 17, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Verse 18, we're getting there. After he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Verse 19, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his, of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Last one, verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days, he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. Do you see it? I mean, at every, at every point, this passage is communicating the futility of these people to try and bring the strength and security that everybody longs, to, longs for. All of these buts are telling us that it's only God who can do this thing. And I do wanna say how thankful I am to live in, in a world of relative peace and security and prosperity. I, I'm, I'm very hopeful that my children and my grandchildren will be able to live in the same way. But a result of living in this kind of peace and prosperity is that we begin to expect things from our political leaders that they can't provide. Unreasonable expectations are heaped upon men and women to do what only God can do. It is only God who can bring perfect peace, stability, and security. I, I really hope we get to go to Cuba again in 2021. Actually, all my buddies from the Cuba trip are here. I see all of you. Um, you know, the horrible things that their truly evil government has done to them 
uh, has given them lots of challenges. But one thing is pretty neat. When you talk with believers in that country, no one, and correct me if I'm wrong, those of you who went with me, no one is under any illusion that the Castro family is going to bring the ultimate peace and security to their world. No one. It is crystal clear in the church in Cuba who is going to ultimately bring peace and security, the peace and security they long for. And as Americans, sometimes that's a little harder for us to see. I don't want to switch places with them. Don't get me wrong. But it's harder. Daniel chapter 11, it tells us that earthly kings and earthly kingdoms, they're transitory. They're going away. So we can't put our trust in them to give us what only God can give us. I mean, I think this is at the heart of Psalm 146. I'm going to read verses three through seven. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. That's the first thing we see in this chapter, in the first 20 verses. We can't put our trust in our human political leaders. The second thing we see in this passage is that we can't compromise our devotion and worship to the God of the Bible. So this is verses 21 through 35. And this is, at this point, the vision moves from um, all the strife of the falling apart of basically everything after the death of Alexander the Great, and it focuses in on one truly evil leader, leader named Antiochus IV. And again, chapter eight, I talk a lot about Antiochus. You can go back and listen. I'm not going to do that again, but he was a bad dude. I mean, he was ruler over an area that included Jerusalem. He wanted to do whatever he could to stamp out the Jewish faith, to oppress them. He made it illegal. He stopped worship altogether in the temple. He made it illegal to possess uh, passages of scripture or even circumcise your children at penalty of death if you did either of those. Uh, historians think, guess that he slaughtered somewhere between 30 and 50,000 people. But the ultimate spite to the Jewish people, the ultimate offense came when he ousted the high priest, he put his own man in there, and then he, he sacrificed a pig an unclean animal on the altar to the God of Zeus, the Greek God Zeus. That was the ultimate offense for the Jewish people. That is the event that they would know as the abomination of desolation. And this is, this is so I say that so you can hear verse 28 and 31 very, very clearly. Verse 28 says, his, this is Antiochus IV, his heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. This is what he did. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And if you look at this passage, the danger, the main danger isn't persecution, it's compromise. That's what Daniel is preparing through the vision, is preparing his people for, to be able to endure this kind of persecution and not compromise. That's why, look at verse 30. Uh, he, that is Antiochus IV, shall turn back and pay attention. He'll, he'll pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So those who, who abandoned the faithful worship of the God of Israel, he'll pay attention to them. He'll relent on them. He may give them special privileges. 
And then verse 32, he, again Antiochus, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So those who abandon, those who compromise, uh, he'll seduce you with flattery, but the people who know their God shall stand firm. You know, we've seen over the course of church history, everywhere there has been persecution. Uh, One of two things has happened to churches and individual Christians. They have either been drawn to Jesus in a more significant way. They've, they've needed him, they've understood him and their, their whole faith and practice has been refined and purified or we've compromised. And I don't think it's a stretch. I really went through all the places in church history that I could, I could think about. I don't think it's a stretch to say every place the church and the state have enjoyed a really cozy relationship, it has caused the church to have to compromise in some way. But Paul tells us that all, all who love Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All of us. And so Daniel, he's warning his people that there will be a day. There will be a day when you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose between comfort and maybe a seat at the table and faithful worship to Jesus Christ. That's just going to be a reality for God's people. Angela and I, we had lunch with the chancellor at RTS last year, and he was, he was talking about how he's, he's preparing for the day where, where maybe the accreditation of their counseling school is threatened because they're faithfully teaching a Christian sexual ethic. You know, I think that we, we should be preparing ourselves for a continued onslaught of religious freedoms. And the way that we prepare ourselves for these things is to understand that they're still all within God's control. We prepare ourselves through lots of different ways, but we have to now ask ourselves, when that happens, what are we gonna do? Are we going to compromise or are we gonna be, remain faithful in our worship and our devotion to the God of the Bible? And if that sounds depressing to you, which it is depressing, let's call it what it is. Uh, Verse 24 isn't depressing at all, all right? Verse 24, without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, again, Antiochus, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his, nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoils, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds. And here it is, the encouraging part, but only for a time, only for a time, Antiochus IV would have his way with his people, but only for a time. Stalin, Hitler, Hitler Castro would have their way, but only for a time. And any, any evil ruler we may fall under one day will have his or her way, but only for a time. Because earthly kings and kingdoms, they're transitory. They go away, but the kingdom of God does not. The kingdom of God will never go away. It is going to come because he has secured it for us. One day, every earthly king will be deposed and Jesus will take his rightful place on the throne and reign forever. It's only for a time. So we do not compromise our devotion and our worship. And then this brings us to the third piece, the last piece that will help us to endure the coming persecution. And the third thing in verses 36 through 45, Daniel is clearly telling us, do not lose hope. 
So the big question, there's a big question here about that we continue to follow an evil king of some sort. And the question is, are we continuing with Antiochus IV or is this some other new character being introduced? So some would say, uh, and for what it's worth, even in the reformed world, there's disagreement over this, but uh, some would say, no, it's still Antiochus IV that we're talking about because there's no major break between verses 35 and 36. Uh, the, the language may change a little bit, but there's not enough of a break. Uh, another camp would say, yeah, there is a little bit of a break. There's a linguistic break. Um, this guy actually has a different name. He's called the King. Uh, for what it's worth, again, there's freedom in this room to disagree on this. I, I do think that we're introducing a new character because this part of the passage, it goes all the way until the end of, of chapter 12. And at the end of chapter 12, we're at the end of time. We're talking about resurrection. We're talking about forever kind of language. So I do think this is some sort of end times like antichrist. Um, yeah, let me get back to my spot. <laughs> uh, okay, in ancient Near East, in this kind of genre, it's really common for, uh, to use types and anti-types. So you could use someone to communicate the magnitude of somebody that would follow them. I think this is what's going on. I think he's using Antiochus IV to communicate the magnitude of this future leader who will persecute us. Uh, we, we uh, my kids and I uh, went to Disney Springs uh, on Saturday trying to see if we could get a look at an NBA player. <laughs> it didn't work. They, they, when they say the bubble, they mean the bubble. But, um, but I, I was thinking about this type anti-type and imagine you had to go back to the 1970s and explain the greatness that would be Michael Jordan. Okay, probably an easy way would be to say, all right, well, let's start with what you know. Imagine Julius Irving, Dr. J, all right? but faster, more agile, uh, more dominating, a higher vertical. And that, that would help you to understand, okay, th th we're talking about a serious basketball player here. I think in a similar way, that's what Daniel's doing. But, but instead of communicating greatness, he's communicating evil and terror. And he's saying everything that you have now heard about Antiochus IV, even more so in this other leader. This man, I think, is who Jesus calls the abomination of desolation, who Paul calls the man of lawlessness. This man, uh, we see he loves war and violence. Verse 38 says he bows down to the God of war and violence. This man attacks the people of God in verse 36. In verses 35 and 36, we see that he actually wants to be God, all of which were true of Antiochus IV, only more so about this future leader. He is going to rule. He's going to have large swaths of land and make it as difficult as he knows how for those of us who want to remain faithful in our devotion and our worship to the God of the Bible. But we do not lose hope because of one word in the very last verse here. Do you see it? Yet. Yet he will come to his end. As much as he wants to be God, he is not as much as he wants to rule forever, he won't. So we do not lose hope because Jesus is coming back. He is going to overthrow all and depose all earthly kings. And he is going to bring his perfect kingdom into this world. And John, the apostle John in Revelation chapter 21, he got a picture of what this is gonna look like. I mean, let's, let's just imagine it for a moment. When Jesus finally comes back and does this, he comes back and he brings his kingdom and all of our concerns and our woes and our scares are just gone. 
21 verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. We do not compromise in our worship and our devotion. We do not lose hope because there is a kingdom that Jesus has secured with his life and he is bringing that kingdom here. And in just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to celebrate that kingdom and anticipate that kingdom by practicing the Lord's Supper, a practice that we have decided to do weekly now, as long as we're in this unique, uh, no singing time. Um, And I was thinking this morning, actually, one of our interns helped me to start down this path, but just thinking for about the last 12 hours. Believers all over the world have been celebrating this together. And for about the next 12 hours, believers all over the world will be practicing this together. And then I started thinking, generally speaking, the believers who practice this in the first 12 hours, they're in a very different religious and political climate than most of us the second 12 hours of this 24 hour day. Most of the, many of the believers in the East, our Eastern friends, they're practicing this at the very least with social, social forces pushing them, resisting on them from practicing it. And at worst, they're doing this in secret because if it's found out, they could be imprisoned or even killed for doing it. This morning, I think it would be good for us to have them in our minds, to pray for them, And honestly, just gain an er an eternal perspective. We have challenges, but we're in the 12 hours over here. So we come together as a church and unite as a church. Whether we agree or disagree, because we celebrate a kingdom that is coming no matter what. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are actively preparing ourselves for anything that could push against our faith. We're preparing ourselves somehow mysteriously, as God mysteriously blesses this time, we're preparing ourselves by remembering that that Jesus' body was crushed, that we might be made new. His blood was shed, that we might live forever. There's nothing that will take away that joy. So let's not let it. Let's celebrate what we have in the kingdom of God. Celebrate who we have in Jesus Christ. Albeit a slightly different way, but church this morning, whether you're here or whether you're at home, we get to celebrate. So I'm gonna pray for our time and I'm gonna ask all of us to prepare our hearts to celebrate. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning 
amidst all kinds of uncertainties, even, even though we have it the easier 12 hours of the day. But we come to you with uncertainties and chaos, and I want to lift up all Christians around the world, especially those in the 12 hours over here, the 12 hours to our east, that we would, amidst any kind of opposition or persecution or challenge, that we would gain the joy that celebrating the Lord's Supper enables us to see and to taste and to touch and to feel. God, we experience the gospel and the Lord's Supper in so many different ways in all of our senses. And we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would bless this time. I pray specifically for everyone who's listening and can't be with us this morning that you would supernaturally bless them in some similar kind of way, even though they can't be with us here physically in doing this, but you see them and you care about them. And so we lift them up this morning. God, I pray that we will never celebrate the Lord's Supper in this season without remembering those who can't be with us this morning. So thank you. Thank you for the ways that you lift up and sustain all of your people and the way that you are bringing a kingdom that will never fail. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.